Today we are going to complete, as the Lord allows, uh, the final verses of chapter 4. So we've been making our way through this book, and we'll pick up today in verse 11 of chapter 4 and make our way to the end of the chapter. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want hearts that are open to receive. And Lord, you know our tendency. Lord, sometimes we, uh, we just sit maybe politely for uh, 40 minutes or so, and, and we don't engage with the text. And Lord, uh, that, that's sad. It's tragic. Uh, I do it. I know I do it uh, myself. And so, Lord, uh, we want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We want your word, Lord, to cut down to the deep places. We want to be challenged. We want to be comforted. We want all the things that your word does in the life of your children. Lord, so often it's dependent upon receptive soil. And so we're praying that our hearts would be prepared and ready to receive the word. And Lord, that you'd cause it to bear much fruit. And that you'd cause it to bear much fruit for your glory. And so, Lord, this is our prayer. Be with us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, uh, as we know, uh, if you've been with us or if you've read this book before, as you know, 1 Timothy is one of those pastoral epistles where Paul wrote three letters, actually, two young men, uh, pastors, uh, for the purpose of kind of giving them some specific instructions for the calling and the task that God had given to them. And so we know 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus are those pastoral epistles. Now this particular book, 1 Timothy, it has begun, as you know, if you've been with us, as you know, there's been a lot of, Timothy, I'm going to put you in charge of this local body of believers. I can't be there right now. You go ahead of me. I'll be there as soon as I can. And these are some things I need you to go and deal with. Remember, we've been using that phrase to go there to attain order and then stay around and maintain order. So a lot of what we've been reading so far in the book of 1 Timothy has been focused on the the work that Timothy was going to do. As Paul comes to chapter 4, and particularly now as we come to these final verses of chapter 4, Paul transitions and he spends some time really talking about Timothy and the type of person Timothy would need to be. So you're going to go do this work, Timothy. This is the type of man you need to be in order to do this work. And so it is much more pastoral in that sense, not so much about this is what you need to do, this is about who you need to be. And I think it's important for us because as we read this text, almost every one of us in this room, we're not pastors. There's a few of us in this room that are. And we could look at a text like this and say, well, this isn't really for me. It's the same thing we looked at a little earlier when Paul was talking to the type of person that the elder needed to be or the type of person that the deacon needed to be. The temptation for us to look at that is to not apply it to our own lives. But if you will, this is a standard that every one of us should be looking toward, striving toward. If that's what's expected of that guy, well, then why shouldn't it be expected of me as well? And so as I look at this passage and I consider these things that Paul is telling Timothy, I'm reminded that these aren't just for me as a pastor, and they're not just for some guy as a pastor, but they're for each of us that are walking with Jesus and that want to walk with Jesus. And so Paul is going to now shift his attention to the person of Timothy, the type of person that he would need to be to effectively serve God and to represent God. It's been said, you can be a horrible person and still be a great doctor. Or you can be a horrible person and still be a great lawyer. 
But what you cannot be is a horrible person and be a great pastor or even a representative of Christ. And so the success of a person's ministry, the, the impact that a person is going to have, it's ever going to be linked to, to the quality and the character of the person that is serving in that role. And Paul knows that. It's what he himself had to deal with in his own life here. And so it's what he begins now to shift his attention to in verse 11. And so as representatives of the Lord, in official capacities as pastors, in maybe unofficial capacities as kind of volunteers and servants and elders and deacons maybe at a church, or just simply as followers of Christ, that people think of Christ when they think of you. I think these words are for each one of us. So beginning today in verse 11, Paul says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in these things, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so the text, it, it ends with another one of those controversial statements about saving yourself. It's similar to some of the, the statements that we saw earlier in the book. So we'll come to that. We'll talk about what Paul means and what Paul doesn't mean. But he begins this section and he says, command and teach these things. Now, again, ideally, we would sit down, we'd do the entire letter in one sitting and we'd get the whole context of things. But I understand time schedules and stuff. We're not going to sit here for 35 hours straight. Uh, and so we remind ourselves of the context of Paul's statement. He says, command and teach these things. Remember the key reason Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus is because there had arisen a group of people that were teaching false teachings, false doctrine. And so Paul had, or excuse me, Timothy had to go there, correct that false teaching, deal with that, and so Paul here now, he continues, and that's what we looked at in our last study. Remember, he reminded him, Timothy, of right doctrine. He said, look, you need to go, you need to point out the errors of their doctrine. Remember the genealogies and the old wives' fables and the like. So point out the errors, teach, remind the people of correct doctrine, and then he told him, and teach them like an athlete training, be diligent about that correct doctrine. And so that was the context of last week. Notice what he says here. He begins, command and teach these things. Now, we would call this an exhortation. It's a strong encouragement on the part of the Apostle Paul. But in reality, uh, the word that Paul used earlier in the book, Paul's commanding Timothy. Remember, that's a military term. He's ordering Timothy, and he's expecting Timothy to carry out those orders. And so he says, command and teach these things. Paul wasn't giving Timothy ideas or, you know, hey, this might work for you. It's worked for me. It'll be good for you. Paul is commanding him, this is what your ministry needs to be about, correct doctrine and teaching. So he says, command and teach these things. Now, in the same way that Paul commanded Timothy, Timothy is to command his, the congregation in his care. And we see that word there. He says, command and teach these things. That's that military charge once again, 
that Timothy was to go, he was to present this clear doctrine that the congregation, that the we'll call them the sub-teachers, if you will, those that were teaching in small group type settings and the like, that they were to stick to these teachings, they were to present these teachings to the congregation and expect that they would be followed by the congregation. Not our own ideas, not our own whims or whatever, the scripture. Paul says, command and teach these things. It's the same type of statement that Paul told Titus, which is another pastoral epistle. Paul wrote this in Titus 2. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. And so you can imagine. Yeah, I understand, you know, here's Timothy trying to teach. I understand some people think that, but I think, you know, this is what somebody else might say and how somebody else might respond. Timothy, let no one disregard you. Titus, let no one disregard you. Speak, exhort, reprove with all authority these things. That's Paul's command to young Timothy, is that he was to exercise authority and he was to demand accuracy, both in his own teaching and in the teaching from others within that congregation. Again, false teaching had made its way into the congregation. It was creeping in. And Timothy needed to go and make sure that it had no place in that congregation. And so he uses this word command. Now, by using that word, it's clear Paul means to communicate that the role of authority was on Timothy as the commissioned leader of that congregation. That was the role he was supposed to fill and the role he was to play in that congregation. And failure to do so would indicate that Timothy wasn't rising to the standard of what he needed to be as the leader of that church. Timothy, or anyone else in this particular role, was not to lead uh, timidly, Timothy and timidly, but he was to lead strongly and with confidence. Paul's not asking Timothy, you know, go make suggestions to the congregation, hopefully, you know, here's some tips to live by. That's not what Paul is asking Timothy to do. He was to present what the people were to believe according to the teachings of the scripture. He was to boldly proclaim the word of God. And increasingly, we live in a society, I think, where nobody wants to boldly proclaim anything. Everybody's afraid to take a stand on anything. Whatever you think is okay. Who am I to say what you should think? Well, some people are just wrong. And some things are just wrong. And increasingly, we don't want to say anything about it lest we offend someone. I don't don't go out to offend people. I don't want to have a problem with people. I just want to live my life, leave me alone, and I'm going to live my life the way it is. But that does not mean that we sacrifice truth. And Timothy here was called to boldly proclaim the word of God. You don't want to take it, don't take it. I'll go on and I'll live my life here. I get it. You can have your views and I can have my views. But I'm not going to acknowledge your views are correct if they don't line up with the scripture. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you need to lead these people. And you need to be bold in your proclamation of truth. Now, there's reasons why we can be bold. We can boldly proclaim the word of God, even if we know that others may not receive that. But there are reasons why we can boldly proclaim it. And Paul is commanding Timothy to fearlessly proclaim God's word and not give in to the fear of man. And if you have a fear of man, whether you're a pastor or you're just someone sitting in at work talking to people uh, in the lunchroom, if you have a fear of man, you're going to hinder what it, the truth that you're sharing with them. 
because you don't want them to be offended. You don't want them to be hurt. You don't want them to fire you, whatever it might be. Timothy was to boldly put forth the word of God as the word of God and let the word of God do what it's going to do because God's word indeed does do what it does. We live in a culture afraid of truth and the effective minister, again, officially or unofficially, must present God's word boldly, kindly, respectfully, but unapologetically. This is what the Word of God teaches. And so if Timothy or any of us are going to be faithful to our call, then we need to preach and teach God's Word with boldness. And we can teach God's Word just in a conversation. It's not some formal thing necessarily. Sin needs to be confronted, and it will need to be confronted. False teaching needs to be pointed out. Unbelief needs to be challenged. Our listeners need to be uncomfortable from time to time. And if we're afraid to do any of those things, we won't be bold in the proclamation of the truth. Now, this doesn't mean Timothy is going to be yelling at his congregation every week. I think some people interpret it. Man, I was bold today. I really yelled at those people. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. I think we see some pastors that beat the sheep. You may have heard of that expression. And that's the indicator that they did a good job that week or they really were bold or whatever. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. I think the truly effective minister is bold in their preaching, but they're, temp they're gentle in their temperament. And it's that gentleness that will keep that preacher from becoming harsh. It'll keep that preacher from becoming abusive even. It'll keep that preacher from becoming, if you will, devoid of grace. That being said, his teachings must have an unmistakable tone of authority. This is the truth. Otherwise, and let's think about it, why go listen to that preacher anyway? If they don't even believe what it is they're preaching, why listen to it anyway? So what gives a teacher boldness? Well, it shouldn't be, at least it shouldn't be, his confidence. Man, that guy's confident. He can go in any room and, you know, command the room. Well, that's not what our boldness is in. It's not in his wittiness or his ability to debate. I mean, I can shut anybody down in a debate. Though that's not where his boldness should come from. It shouldn't come from his ability to persuade or any of the other things that people put their confidence in. The preacher's confidence is entirely or needs to be entirely dependent upon the word of God and his own response to the word of God. That he has seen the word of God work itself out in his life. He has seen the truth of God. He believes the truth of God because a man that is unsure if the Bible is God's word is going to lack authority in their preaching. If I, well, you know, it could mean this, it could mean that. Again, why spend time listening? A man who is called to teach God's word must know God's word because a man who is not sure what the Bible says is also going to lack authority in their preaching. That means that the effective minister, and again, if, if you want to minister to the people at your work, you're a minister. The effective minister will be diligent in their study so that they can be confident in their proclamation or its proclamation. I think there's a third reason why a preacher can be bold, and that's because we believe that the word of God is effective. That as the word of God goes forth, it has the ability to cut to the heart of people. Cut down deep. 
And so even if that person isn't ready to receive from me, even if that person, even if my argument isn't perfect and ideal, and man, you just, you convinced me, as uh, Will was saying earlier, we know the word of God is effective. And God's word stays with people. And so as people go and they, they, on their way or whatever, your conversation with them and your presentation of God's holy word, spiritual word, lingers inside of a person. And God continues to use that word within them so that months later they can be converted by God's word long after you said anything to them. And so a teacher can boldly proclaim uh, and preach because they know God's word is effective. God's the one that does the work. I like the way Charles Spurgeon, as he compared the word of God to an angry lion, he said, all you need to do is let that angry lion out of its cage. Just let it out of its cage, and it's going to do what angry lions do. Same thing with the word of God. Let it out and let it do what it's going to do. And then finally, I I would say this, similar to what I said earlier, the bold minister is not afraid if somebody gets offended. Again, that's not his goal. He's not trying to offend people and poke people in the eyes. But the bold preacher rests in the fact that any offense comes from God and not from himself. And so he boldly proclaims God's word. Now Paul continues. He said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul calls him there a youth. And he says, look, nobody should despise you. Don't don't, Don't let people despise you or ignore you because of the fact that you're younger, Timothy. Now, this doesn't mean that Timothy is going to put himself on some pedestal. I'm in charge here. Doesn't matter what my age is, I'm in charge, and nobody can say anything about it. That's not the point that Paul is getting at here. Rather, what Paul is communicating is that Timothy is to give nobody an occasion to condemn him. Well, this guy here, look, he's just a kid. Not because of his age, but because of his actions, his behavior. Why would we listen to this guy? He says instead that Timothy is to be an example, that that he might avoid the possibility of justified criticism. Now, we hear this word youth, and we think, I think, 13, 14, 15-year-old Timothy's in charge there of the congregation. Would, Would some of you have trouble if our pastor was 13? You know, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can trust this fellow here. The word youth there in the Bible, it could mean 13, 14, 15, but it could be used all the way up to like 40 years of age. And so Timothy is a young man, relatively speaking. You remember the story of the rich, young ruler? The same word that is used there, youth, young, same word that is used there. So Paul is probably in his mid to upper 60s. Timothy is probably in his mid to upper 30s. And many of the people in this congregation are going to be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, or maybe even more than that, 30 years older than Timothy. So relatively speaking, Timothy is a youth, a young person. I'm finding the older that I get, the more youth there are that are around me. 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, I was just a kid or whatever. And I thought I was pretty mature when I was 25 years of age. Not everybody agreed. So Timothy is not a kid, but he is going to be dealing with the elders in Ephesus that were much older than him. And so Paul tells him, look, don't let that age difference prevent you from doing 
what it is that you are called to do. Don't be intimidated by the fact that you are younger. Don't let them despise you because you are younger and you act like you're immature. He says, he uses this word despise in verse 12. Now it's a word that connotes sort of the contempt that would be felt in the mind, but not just in the mind, something that was being displayed. The idea is that there were people there not listening to Timothy who would not listen to Timothy because he was so young. And so with that in mind, what Paul is saying is, look, don't allow them to push you around or ignore you because of your youth. And so Paul either expected that this was going to happen, perhaps he saw that this was going to happen, and so he says to Timothy, look, don't allow yourself to be intimidated. Just because you're 20 years younger, 30 years younger, 40 years younger, don't allow yourself to stop leading. Lead, Timothy. You know what you need to do. You know what you're supposed to teach. You know how you're supposed to confront when you are supposed to confront. Don't be hindered by the fact that you are younger. So that's one. And I, I think the application could be maybe you are less educated than somebody else in, in the world sense. And so you allow yourself to be intimidated and you will never have that conversation because they're so much smarter than I. You have the Holy Spirit. Don't be intimidated by that. Maybe somebody else is more popular or important or debonair or whatever it might be in society and you're just you and you let that intimidate you so you won't speak truth into the circumstance. Paul would say, no, don't let them despise you because you're less educated. Don't let them despise you because you're less hip. Don't let them despise you because, and you can put whatever it is that you might allow you to keep your mouth shut when you should be speaking into a circumstance. Are you with me? You, you catching where I'm going with that? But I think there's a second application and of this command about Timothy's youth. And that is because Timothy was younger, he was more vulnerable to the things that younger people sometimes do. And I think what Paul is also saying, or I think an application that Timothy could take from this is, yes, I am younger, and yes, I'm more prone to being perhaps immature or not have all the information I need in the decisions that I make, but I'm not going to allow myself to give others opportunity to criticize me. I'm going to be aware of the fact that because I am a youth, I may go down this track, and I'm going to make sure that I don't. I'm going to be aware of the fact because I'm young, I may make decisions without truly thinking them through as perhaps somebody with a little more age and wisdom might. And so I'm not going to do that. Does that make sense? And so Timothy is as much responsible that others wouldn't look down upon his youth as those people are responsible for looking down upon his youth. I like the way Guy King said it. Guy King sounds like some fella around the corner. This guy wrote a lot of books in like the 50s and of the 1900s. He said this, Timothy is to offset the fewness of his years by the richness of his character. Isn't that sweet? So that the flock will quickly forget how young he is by the recognition of how godly he is. Paul uses the phrase he was to set an example. If you look at verse 12, he goes on, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In purity, not im. And in purity. The natural inclination, I think when a person's leadership is challenged, here's Timothy, this young guy, when I listen to you, 
the natural inclination is not godliness. I think the natural inclination is to pull rank. The natural inclination is the opposite of godliness. And sometimes we do that, we become defensive. Sometimes we respond with sarcasm. Sometimes we put the other person down as they're trying to put us down and lessen us. We make sure we lessen them first. Sometimes we just give up. Well, if these people don't want me to lead, I won't lead them or whatever. And I'll just ignore the old people. And I'll just focus my attention on those that are younger than me. Or I just quit altogether. They don't want me to be the minister. I won't be the minister. That's our response sometimes. Paul says, your response to anyone that will des- might despise you for your youth is to set those folks an example. Again, to go back to the way Guy King said it, where they'll begin to forget that he's a young, per- a young guy, and instead they'll say, man, what a godly guy. Paul was to set an example. He was to set an example so that when people looked at him, they thought of Jesus. Recently, a friend of mine, there was a... Um, a police officer that was killed in South Jersey, some of you may recall, down in the Vineland area. And so the funeral for the line of duty death of that officer was enormous. 10,000 people came to this. And a friend of mine was asked to do the service here. And his first thought was, I don't want to do the service. Like, There's no way I want to find myself in a circumstance like that. And so he, he was asking a bunch of us, just please pray for me uh, that I would know what to say and how to say it and the heart from which to say it. And so I didn't go to the service, but I watched the service online. And, and when it was all over, I sent my friend a note. And I said, you did great. And I said, you reminded me of Jesus. That's who I thought of, Jesus. And that's how we can effectively minister to people. When they look at us, and they see Jesus, we're having a true impact on those people. And so rather than Timothy saying, putting these people in their place, or look, old man, like I'm not taking it anymore, I'm in charge, or any of those silly, ungodly responses that may naturally come out, what he says is, be Jesus to them. Let them see Jesus, they'll forget about your youth, and they'll say, look, I don't care if he's 30 or 40 years old or 20 years old. I want to be like him because he's just like Christ. That's what he says to him. That's the chief duty of a minister, is to represent Christ to the congregation and the community in which he serves. The chief duty of the minister is not so much what we're doing, but who we are. And Timothy was to set that example. Now, I think this is a rather sobering thought. What if the spiritual walk of everyone in your fellowship was exactly like yours. Pastor, would this be a strong, healthy congregation? You know, to apply it a little more widely, what if the kids in the youth group that you lead, what if their spiritual walk with Christ was just like your, your walk with Christ? What if the couples that attend your, the home fellowship that you administer, what if their relationship with one another was like your relationship with your spouse? Parents, what if our children's relationship with God was like our relationship with God? Would it be good? Would it be like fantastic? Or would would we be concerned? Timothy was to set an example. And the congregation, whether they realized it or not, would follow that example. And I think maybe one of the single greatest uh, tools of our leadership 
is the power of an exemplary life. Setting an example of godly living that others can follow. Because in reality, you know, you can say all kinds of stuff, but if your life doesn't match up, people aren't going to be listening. Why should they listen? Your own life doesn't match up with what it is you're saying. And so in the context here of Timothy, his authoritative preaching will be completely undermined if it's not matched with a virtuous life. It just will be. And so Paul, as he's saying, look, don't give anyone a reason to despise your youth. He, he says, instead, set the example. Now, he says it in five areas, some versions, six areas, which I'll talk about in a moment. But he says, set the believers an example in speech, in speech. Notice, he's not saying set the believers an example in your speeches. He's not talking about Timothy's preaching. He says, set the believers an example uh, in your speech. That is Timothy's everyday conversations. As Timothy interacts with people, you know, he steps off the platform and he, he's talking with people. And when he's over at 7-Eleven and when he's at this place and that place, his everyday conversations, Timothy was to set an example of how a Christian should be in their words that they speak. And I think we need to take great care. And oftentimes I think we do when we're in, at church, right? We're real careful with our words. And yes, bless you, brother. You know, we say things like that, and I'm just, you know, and everything is great, and everything is positive, and, you know, we make sure we say the right words, and we don't backbite, and we certainly don't curse, and all those kinds of things. Well, the believer needs to take great care with how they speak with others in every setting that they find themselves with others. How easy it can be for us to lose our witness because we don't watch what we say, and we don't watch how we say it. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus taught us that our hearts, or excuse me, our words reveal what's going on in our hearts. They do. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And some of us, we lie with our words. We lie. Maybe not here in church, but in other settings, we lie, and we reveal the true aspect of our heart, that we're a person that can't be trusted. Some of us are given to gossip, and we destroy our credibility as trusted counselors in other people's lives. Some of us, we tear down with our words, and we wound those that we have been called to care for. Some of us speak from the place of anger or impurity or slander, all of those addressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that they should not be. Some of us, we just talk too much. In light of this morning, I feel like I'm doing that. Uh, some of us just talk too much. And we never give other people an opportunity. Well, that communicates a message that I'm more important than you. So sit and listen to all I have to share with you. Paul's admonition to Timothy is, look, set the example of what a self-controlled tongue looks like. And so when people see that passage about self-control and they think of the tongue, the mouth, the words that we speak, they're going to think of their pastor who ultimately caused them to think of Christ. That's the picture. That's the example. Timothy just taught them with the example that he set. The second thing he says is, set the believers an example in conduct. If you're reading an older version, it might say in conversation. That's an old English word. It gives us the impression we're talking about speech again. 
In reality, that's not what the old word meant. The old word meant everything you do in life. And so it's been translated in more modern translations as conduct. He says, set the people an example in conduct. This is the manner of a person's life. Again, not when they're standing behind a pulpit and preaching, but when they're going about the humdrum of daily life. How do they do so? Well, set an example. How did Jesus do so? What was the example that he set? Well, that's the example that Timothy was supposed to set. And so this is not just the things then that Timothy is saying, but the things that Timothy is doing. This is who Timothy is as a person. His manner of life was to be, as we've read elsewhere, beyond rebuke. Nothing about his life would cause someone to be able to reproach the name of Christ. Oh, those Christians. You know, they're just fake. And so on. Again, the book of Titus, where Paul talked to Titus, that man, pastoral letter, he said this. When he was talking about hypocrites and false teachers, he said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And of course, there Paul was talking about those false teachers, but the same concept can apply to the person that does name the name of Christ, profess to know God, but in works they deny God. Well, again, it ruins your message. It negates your message. Paul says to Timothy, set an example in your life. He goes on, he says, in love. I think this idea of love is both kind of the motive for conduct, why we do what we do because we love others, but also I think the spirit in which we do what we do. Because you could serve all kinds of people, and people know this guy doesn't want to be here, and this guy doesn't like me, and he's just doing this because he has to do it. People can see through it. And so Paul says, set the example to the believers in love, both the motive and the spirit. And remember, Paul and Timothy knew one another very well. Timothy spent 15, 20 years as sort of this mentee of the Apostle Paul. And you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been to a, a Christian wedding of late, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's the chapter that says love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. And go, it goes on from there and so on and so forth. When Paul says set the believer an example in love, Timothy had a passage he could go back to and begin to apply. Maybe you've heard it where people will say, put your name in there. Timothy is patient. Timothy is kind. Timothy does not envy, Timothy does not boast, and so on. And throw your name in there. How are you doing? Are you an example to others of what the Apostle Paul meant and how he defined and showed love? Timothy was to be like Jesus. Biblical love, as you know, is far different from the emotion of love that our culture puts forth. Biblical love is self-sacrificing service on behalf of others. Jesus himself, he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so the good and effective minister is going to give of themselves, to give their time, give their energy, give their devotion to the people that they're called to serve. Timothy, or Paul says, Timothy, set that example. Now there's a fourth one in some versions. Many manuscripts actually have this one, and it's, it says, uh, set the believers an example in spirit. It's not in the English Standard, which is what I am using, but it certainly doesn't contradict uh, the scriptures. And it's the idea of set the believers an example in spirit. The word there is, uh, it's speaking of this idea of enthusiasm. 
Like, what do you, what do you give yourself to? What are you motivated and excited to give yourself to? Think about the things that people get pretty excited, pretty spirited about. Sports, playoff sports, don't they? Oh, man, you see those people go crazy at you know, their playoff events. I, I'm with them. Politics, uh, people really get into that, and they give their all to it. You know, the next big Apple sale, people stand in line for days to get a phone you can buy a week later. I don't get it, but people do it. Some of you may do it. So I think a good question then is to ask ourselves, how does my enthusiasm for the things of God and the service of God compare with my enthusiasm for other things? Does it measure up? You would think it should be far superior. Paul goes on, he says, set the believers an example in faith. Now here he's not referring to belief, but he's referring to commitment, if you will. The word is probably better translated as set the believers an example in faithfulness. Dependability, steadfastness, consistency, not swerving off track and going after other things or deviating from the course as others have done. Paul says, set the believers an example in faith. And then finally, he says, set the believers an example in purity. In purity. Same word that we get in the Greek language translated into English, holiness. And so he says, set the believers an example in holiness. Now remember, where did Timothy minister? Anybody remember the city? Ephesus, very good. Ephesus was, was crazy immoral. It was just built into the culture. It wasn't even people making kind of choices to be immoral. It was just everything in Ephesus was immoral. Even the worship system in Ephesus was immoral. And Timothy is right there in the midst of it. You go out your door, you're right there with it. You can take it all in, you can participate in it, and nobody's going to say anything about it. And he says here to Timothy, set the people an example of holiness even in the midst of the city of Ephesus. And the congregation would be able then to look at Timothy as their right in front of them example of how they should live their lives as well. Set them an example in purity. I think the world we live in isn't too far off from Ephesus, is it? It's right out there. You can have anything you want. You can get it right on your phone. They joke about it on TV, the type of stuff that you can get on your phone or bring into, onto your TV or your computer. And it's all acceptable. Nobody even cares. And yet, as followers of Christ, he calls us to be separate from these things. He calls us to holiness. Timothy, and every one of us, as a godly servant of Christ, we, whether we're official or not, we should set an example in what we say, in what we do, in our love, in our attitude, in our faith or faithfulness, and in our purity. Ministry is a character profession. Godly character creates moral authority. And ultimately, godly character would win these folks over that were looking down upon him because of his youth. He's called to set that standard. That's the standard. You, know, you think of the criteria that we, we oftentimes judge uh, religious leaders, pastors. The criteria should be speech, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Not whether the guy's funny, not whether the guy's cool, not whether he dresses well, not whether he's popular, not whether he's witty. 
What's his speech like? What's his conduct like? What's his love like? And so on and so forth. Paul goes on, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is what Timothy should devote himself to. The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what he needed to give his attention to. Again, to the context of earlier in the chapter, not endless genealogies and not old wives' fables. Give yourself to the public teaching of Scripture. You'll notice every one of those are centered on God's Word. The public reading of Scripture, the exhortation from Scripture, the teaching of Scripture. That was to be the most important thing in Timothy's ministry. That's what he was to devote himself to. And that devotion, it simply means to continually give his attention to the Word of God. Continually give his attention. Public reading of Scripture is so important, especially in that day where people wouldn't have had their own copies of the Scriptures, and the vast majority of people wouldn't have had a Bible, uh, the ability to read the Bible anyway, if they had one. You know, in, in some of the history of Christianity, in some of the history of Christianity, there was a time that the only people that had access to the Word were the religious leaders. And many times they wouldn't even share the Word with the congregation because the congregation wouldn't understand it. That's not Paul's admonition. Paul's admonition, look, the people can't read it. Make sure you do publicly every time you come together, present the word of God to the people so that they can sit, they can hear, they can listen. Now, we live in a day, we're fortunate, every one of us has the scripture. We have the opportunity. But when we gather in this setting, the focus of our time together must be the word of God. That's one random verse that we just sort of pull out and then we go off on our own. The word of God. And we go through it, we continue through it verse by verse by verse by verse until we've covered the entire thing. And then what do we do? We go back and we do it again. And I'm on a pace now for 25 years. We're going to get through this entire Bible in 25 years. That's my pace. I'm hoping the opportunity to do it again. Uh, maybe I'll do it a little quicker. I think I'll need to do it a little quicker. <laughs> but he's told, he tells him, give yourself continually to the word of God. Put it before the people. Then he uses the word exhortation. Now exhortation, it literally means encouragement. Then it suggests, if you will, an encouragement. Now live these things out. Apply these things to your life. Walk in them. Live them out. But exhortation also challenges people as well. And so Timothy is told to present the word. He, later he's going to be told to teach it, explain it, and then exhort the people to walk in it. Again, read the word, explain the word, apply the word. It's all centered on the word of God. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, Timothy, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now there's a tense that this is written in the original language, and, and I, don't, I don't know the original language, and so I'm told and I trust in this instance, I read enough people that said it, that the tense here indicates that Timothy may have already been neglecting. So he says, do not neglect the gift. It's as if he is saying, Timothy, don't go on neglecting this gift. You see the difference there? And so it seems like Paul is saying, don't do it, Timothy. You've been given a gift from God. It was acknowledged by the elders when they laid their hands upon you, and you've been neglecting that gift. Why? Maybe because he was young and he was intimidated. Maybe because other people were making more convincing arguments. Maybe because he was just being lazy. Whatever it might be, says, Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was given to you. 
Paul knew Timothy was gifted for the ministry and that that gifting was affirmed by others that were in the ministry, the elders, when they laid hands on him. And so his admonition to him is, look, Timothy, exercise the gift you've been given. And that seems to imply to me that Timothy could lose the gift, if you will, through lack of use, that he had to keep using it, keep exercising, keep growing in it. It's important to understand, if a, if a person has a spiritual gift, the Bible teaches that every one of us, if we're Christians, we have a spiritual gift, whatever that might be. Some called to serve, some called to teach, some called to, to, for ministry of help, some called for healing, some called for prophecy, all those that are listed throughout the scriptures. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. But when a person is called to a ministry as well, God will often empower them with another gift or gifts. Here, it's indicated that that time that the elders prayed upon him, that he received additional gifts, probably, I'm going to guess, the gift of teaching, maybe the gift of preaching, maybe the gift of leadership or discernment what, that he might need in there. We're never told exactly what it was, but we are told that Timothy was beginning to neglect that. And so here, he's been given this unique and special gift to accomplish what God has raised him up to accomplish, and he was just letting it sit on the side. Now, I think what's important to understand is when a person has been given a spiritual gift, that, like let's say teaching, that doesn't mean like magic words come out of their mouth. It doesn't mean every time they open up their mouth that holy words come forth. There's a lot of study. There's a lot of diligence that goes in. And there is the exercising of the gift to get even better at it in the natural as God empowers in the spiritual. That's what Paul is getting at with Timothy. Timothy was neglecting this gift. And Paul's call to him is, don't do it, Timothy. How sad. If Timothy needed to be encouraged, you know this, the gift God gave you. You remember when the elders laid their hands on you? Timothy, you know you're gifted. Walk in that gifting. Or Paul says, practice these things, verse 15. Immerse yourself in these things so that all may see your progress. This word immerse yourself in, it could be translated, wrap yourself entirely up in them. It'll be complete, give yourself to this and only to this, Timothy. I think it's important, obviously, to take a break every now and again. But his point is simply, Timothy, be focused on this. Don't get sidetracked with this thing. Don't get sidetracked with that thing. Be focused on your call to minister there in Ephesus. I think how dangerous it can be to, for our attention to be divided. And now, yeah, I do my ministry. I get it done, you know, and I, whew, I got through that study. Now I have more time to do what I want to do and go after this thing and that thing and how important it is to stay focused as a minister and give our undivided attention to the advancement of God's kingdom. Timothy, as a man of God, was to be single-minded. He was to have a consuming devotion. Second Timothy, Paul wrote, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Timothy's never going to say, well, I'm off duty. Today's Friday. Pastors, we take off on Fridays. Timothy's never going to say that. He would be ready in season and out of season. Paul goes on, and he, he speaks in that passage about, so that all may see your progress. Isn't that good? I appreciate that because Timothy is, has been appointed to this role 
to be the leader of the, one of the largest cities in the world at that time, one of the most influential cities of the world at that time, multiple churches, not just one church that gathers in one room here. And Paul says to him about his progress. That means Timothy is here and he wants to see him get to here. That, what that tells me is we don't have to be up here in order to serve God. That God will grow us in the process. We'll get to where we need to be and we'll continue to get to the place that we need to be. So if you feel you don't measure up, you don't. Timothy didn't. Paul didn't. Paul would say in another place, if I can find it here. Well, we'll find it later. He says, how I press on for the upward call of the glory of Christ. I'm not there. I haven't attained. I'm on my way. I'm getting there. That's what he's telling Timothy. And he says it so that everyone might see your progress, that the people would say, our pastor is growing. We need to be growing. Again, that verse that I, I mangled, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. That's what he's telling Timothy. Keep progressing. Verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's two instructions there. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. The yourself part, that's verse 12. His speech, his conduct, his love, his faith, his purity. The on your teaching, that's that part about the doctrine that was given to Timothy that he was commanded to guard and to watch over. Paul says of those two things, keep a close watch on them. Fix your attention on them is how it can be worded. Fix your attention on your life. Fix your attention on your doctrine. Notice the order on your life first. That's the first thing that Timothy needed to be responsible for is how was his walk with Jesus? Not so much what I'm learning so I can share with everybody else. How's your walk with the Lord doing? He says, fix your attention on that. And then secondly, and just as importantly, and then fix your, uh, your attention on your doctrine. What are you teaching? Because, again, you can just begin to drift. And I, I remember uh, one of our retreat pastors spoke to us one time, and he was a pilot as well. And he talked about how if your instruments are just a degree off, a degree off, what's a degree well, you fly long enough, you're going to end up in a completely different place on the other side of the world, even if you're just a degree off. And how easy it is for us to just get a degree off. And soon we find ourselves, we're reading stuff that isn't really helping us doctrinally. We're getting away from the scripture. We're reading about the scripture. And soon we're playing that whisper down the lane game. Where it's not the word of God that's speaking to us, but it's people that are speaking to us. And we're a degree off and two degrees off and five degrees off. And now we're on the other side of the world. And so he emphasizes and fix your attention, not only on yourself, but also on your doctrine. He says, persist in these things. The idea there is, Timothy, you're 39 years old here. For the next 50 years of your life on this earth, this is what you need to do. Persist in these things. And he says, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now that gives the impression that that's how he's going to get to heaven. If Timothy would keep a good eye on himself and not become a bad person, and he would have good doctrine, then he'll get to go to heaven. He'll save himself. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not referring to, remember the word save there in the scriptures, it, it can just as much refer to sanctification as it can eternal salvation. 
And so Paul's not talking here about eternal salvation. What Paul is talking about for him and his congregation, his hearers, is that if he fixes his attention on his own life and sets an example for them to follow, and he fixes his attention on the doctrine that he teaches, he will save them, he will guard them, he will protect them from the false teachers from earlier in the chapter. And those messages that are making their way into the congregation, and they're causing a lot of people to fall and stumble and go after them, Timothy can save them from that. He can save himself from that. Well, how would I do that? Their, their arguments are so convincing. Stick to the word of God and stick to your relationship with God, Timothy, and you'll be fine. And your congregation will be fine. You can save both them and yourselves. Now, here's the fun thing, I think, is we could do plenty of reading about this guy, Timothy. There's, there's a lot of church fathers, those that lived in the first century, the second century, that wrote about Timothy. And so historically, we can go back and we can read. I wonder how Timothy did. We know what Paul told him to do. Did he do a good job? Answer? Absolutely. He did a fantastic job. Timothy read these words, applied these words, and ran his race well, and came to the end of his race, went to heaven, and heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then it, when I like to think when he got on the other side of Jesus, Paul said, great job, man, you did great. Now come here, let me show you some things around up here in heaven. He did what he needed to do. That encourages me. Timothy was successful because he was godly in character. He was successful because he focused on the word, because he exercised his gift, and because he worked hard at these things. And because he carefully did all of those things and he watched his doctrine, he watched his life, he succeeded as Paul knew he would. Why that's encouraging to me is because those are the same instructions to me and to you. If we do all of those things, we're diligent about them, just as Timothy was, we can expect the same words of acclamation when we get to heaven, well done. You ran your race well. You did what I needed you to do. You served me. You were used by me in the lives of others. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what I desire for my life. I, I, I know a lot of you. I think it's what you desire for your life. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's stay close to his word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we... We delight in that because, Lord, uh, really all that takes is a, a total dependence on you. It's not about uh, we're smart enough to do it. We are determined enough to do it. We're disciplined enough to do it. It's not really about those things. It's about just staying so close to you that you enable these things to be done in our lives. You fill us with your spirit and you empower us by your spirit. And so, Lord, that's it. We want to run our race well to the end of our days. Whether that's sometime this year or it's 50 years away from now. And we want to do it so that you are honored. That you receive the glory. And so, Lord, bless your word to our hearts, we ask this week. In Jesus' name, amen.